Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 5. In just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to give you a little assignment. We're going to have a little, little uh, uh, time to, uh, to share a thought with, you this, with one another this morning. I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to think about phrases that you would use to describe yourself. If you had never met a person, let's say you, you were at a, you know, at a local a fundraiser and you're meeting some new folks or at a cocktail party or maybe at a community group here at Green Tree and it's the first time you were together and the folks were going to kind of go around the room and, and offer a couple of words of explanation. How would you describe yourself? If you could only have at the most two or three words or phrases, what would you use to describe who you are to those around you? I tried this out on a few uh, folks this week and here's some of the words that people use to describe uh, themselves or to describe others sitting around them. Uh, one of the words was wise, uh, discerning. Somebody described another person as uh, frugal. That's a nice way of saying tight-fisted with their money. Um, thoughtful was a word. Giving was another word. And then there was, there was a, a blonde-headed gal sitting next to me when I asked this question who happens to be married to me who talked about defensiveness and arrogance when she was describing someone that she knew fairly well. You might use your occupation. You might say, well, I'm a dentist or I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Uh, in my line of work, if, if you travel a lot, I'm going to give you a little, little tip here. You can use this. It's, it's actually not technically truthful, but it'll save you a lot of grief. If you get on a plane and you've had a long business trip and you're exhausted and the person sits down next to you and looks like they're just, just excited and wants to talk, when they ask you what you do for a living, just say, I'm a pastor. It's all you have to say. And the entire rest of the flight, they'll be looking straight ahead. They'll be looking over here, but they will not be looking back over here. They just they won't want to have anything to do with that. If you're playing golf on a golf course with somebody you don't know and they're cussing a lot, just tell them you're a pastor and the language cleans up. It's really a great tool to pull out of your pocket whenever you might happen to, uh, to need it. But seriously, don't lie and do that. Um, but how would you describe yourself? I want you to think about that for a second. What are, what's two or three words or phrases you would use, okay? Now, what I want you to do, and if you're a visitor this morning, you're excused from this. And you could say you're a visitor, but don't lie about it if you're not. But you're excused if you're a visitor. But the rest of you, I want you to take, I'm going to give you like 45 seconds to do this. Talk to somebody around you and give them your phrase or your words. Describe yourself to somebody. Even if they're, you're married to them for 60 years, that's fine. But find somebody in your immediate vicinity for about 45 seconds. Tell them your words. Go ahead. You got seats on either side of you, so you, you kind of you kind of play. You can tap her on the shoulder and ask her for her words. <laughs> Nate and Bruce, I know y'all aren't <laughs> hiding out back there. <laughs> Just lean on that wall. Okay, did you, did you get some? Got some fun ones over here in this corner? Okay. Got it. <laughs> KU. Yeah. A lot of people are experiencing March Madness. My son Nathan went to IU, and so we're experiencing March Sadness right now, but uh, that's a story for another day. Um, okay. You heard something from somebody around you? If the person around you, one of the one, two, or three most basic things, and, and you guys that were on the worship team and know where I'm going, don't cheat. If somebody around you described themselves, one of the first things they said was, I am a disciple of Jesus. Raise your hand. About two hands. 
Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while a crowd was pressing in on him, that being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gezenerat, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have worshipped you with our mouths. We have sung your praises. We have worshipped you in prayer as we have acknowledged your lordship. Father, now we come to worship you with not only our emotions, but also with our minds. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our spiritual insights, would be attuned to what you want to say to us this morning. Father, we do come from a variety of different backgrounds. We do come from different circumstances. This last week, for some folks sitting in this room, has been a great week. It was a wonderful week. And for others, it just felt like they couldn't put one foot in front of the other. Father, we have different perspectives on life, different political views, different ideas on how to raise kids, all, all kinds of differences. But Father, we have one thing in common this morning. We need to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus. Whether we know him or not, whether we even realize our need is there, Father. You know what's in our hearts. You know the correction we need, the encouragement we need, the love we need, the, the, the discipline we need. So, Father, wherever, wherever that need is, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would set me aside. Father, I, I confess my sin to you. Acknowledge again my, my amazement that you would call me to teach your word. God, I know my sin can be a barrier to that. And I pray that you would not let me be a stumbling block for anybody in this room. That my sin would not get in the way. But Lord Jesus, that we would see you. That you would come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, Luke writes this. In Antioch was the first place where the disciples were called Christians. Antioch was the first place where the disciples were called Christians. 
If you had a Bible this morning and you opened it up and you were following along, uh, there are in English Bibles these days these little subtexts in front of the paragraphs that tell you what the next topic the author is going to cover. And if you looked at yours, if you happen to have a Bible this morning, I can promise you it says something along the lines of this. Jesus calls the first disciples. I want to start a movement this morning. I have big dreams and big visions. I want to start a worldwide movement this morning that we stop calling ourselves Christians. Now, I've only talked to a few hundred people in the first service and now a few hundred people in the second service, so it may take a little bit of time to gain momentum. It may take a little while to reach the Mississippi and then to reach east and to go west, to get to L.A. and then across the world, but, but I am committed to rethinking our name. Jesus called his followers disciples. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling yourself a Christian. Let me say that. I don't think that, that we've made a mistake. But what I do believe is that it is very easy, even in our day and age, when some people mock the, the gospel and make fun of people that go to church, even in our day and age, I think it's pretty easy to say, I'm a Christian. 87% of the people in the United States of America say, I'm a Christian. But I think it's quite another thing, subtle though it may be, to call yourself a disciple of Jesus. For the last two weeks and leading into Holy Week, we are as a congregation praying and fasting. We're seeking God's face for our direction and our identity at Green Tree Community Church to make sure that we're not getting off the path, but that we're actually following him faithfully. And in my prayer times and in my time of fasting, the question that keeps coming back to me over and over and over again is simply this, are we disciples of Jesus? Am I a disciple of Jesus? That's the question I want to ask us this morning. I think that's what this passage leads us to because I believe that in our day and age, the church doesn't need Christians so much as it needs disciples of Jesus. It needs people that are willing to follow the Lord and the Master. And so I want to look at this passage this morning and use it as a springboard for our conversation. The first question I want to throw out to you is this, or statement I want to give you is this. Disciples must be convinced about Jesus. If you're going to be a disciple of his, you must be convinced about him. And here's what I mean by that. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus, uh, verses 1 through 3 showed Jesus influencing his potential disciples with the word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake, he saw the boats, they were empty. The fishermen were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats. It was Simon's. He asked him to put it out a little. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now, I don't know how long the sermon went on. I don't know how long the, the teaching time lasted, but it probably lasted for at least a couple of hours, if not more. And Jesus is sitting there and Simon's close by and James and, and, uh, and his brother John are close by and they're scrubbing their nets, but they're also kind of listening out of the corner of their ears and they're hearing Jesus talk about the word of God. And Jesus is seeking to influence the people around him, not with his personality, not with his, not with his outgoing spirit, but with the word of God itself. Verses 4 through 7 show Jesus influencing potential disciples, not only with the word of God, but with the power of God. Jesus finishes the sermon and he says to Simon, Hey, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this really had to bug Peter, okay? Peter's a professional fisherman. That's what he's done all of his life. He's in business with the, with the Zebedee brothers. Their dads were probably fishermen before them and their dads before them. Peter grew up on the lake. 
Peter knew how to fish. Peter knew what to do. It's interesting, even though every time you read about Peter fishing in the Gospels, he's never catching anything. <laughs> he obviously knew enough to make a living at it. And so here's Peter. He's fished all night. And he says as much to Jesus, even with respect. He says, Master, okay? He says it with respect. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. <laughs> Jesus, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. <laughs> what do you know about fishing? We know the best time to fish is at night. That's really when you catch the most. But notice that Peter's willing to go along with the deal. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Jesus, I've been listening to you the last couple hours. I've been, I've been paying attention to this sermon of yours. And you know what? You speak with a certain authority. I've heard some things about you that are a little bit different than any other rabbi I've ever heard of. So even though you're a carpenter and you're, you're good with word and you might not know anything about fishing, at your command, I'm curious. You've got my attention. I'm going to go out and I'm going to put down the nets. Peter was convinced that there was something different about Jesus. If you're going to claim to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to see that difference also. Are you convinced this morning? Secondly, disciples must understand their sin and God's grace. We know what happens. They let down their nets. They catch so many fish, the nets begin to break. They call their partners over. They begin to fill up the boats, and there's so many fish in the boats that literally the boats begin to sink. This truly is a miraculous experience. And what is Peter's reaction? Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, What? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's conviction of Jesus' identity compelled Peter to an honest personal evaluation. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you're not willing to look at your own sin. If you read the pages of the Gospels, if you read about the life of Jesus, if you read about his teaching and you read about his compassion and his heart and you don't feel some sense of shame for the way in which you've chosen to live your life, the decisions that you've made and the self-centeredness with, with which we as a, as a culture and a community tend to live, then I think your conscience has been seared beyond hope. As you read the Gospels, the purity of the life of Jesus and his teaching and his authenticity cause us to look inward and to be ashamed of what we see. Do you see your sin? I've told you the story before about the impact that a, that a discipleship ministry called Sonship has had on my life. I've told you the story of being... Uh, on a fishing trip, funny enough, in, uh, in Alabama, when I was listening to a tape on repentance and how I broke down and wept in the car. I literally had to pull off the side of the road because I was crying so hard as I came to grips, maybe for the first time in my adult life, with how awful I was compared to a righteous and holy God. But I've been thinking about this and praying and fasting over the last couple of weeks. You know what? I haven't wept very much lately. I've been defensive about my sin. I've excused my sin. I've tried to ignore my sin and not look at my sin, but I can't say that I've actually fallen at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me because I am a wicked man. Disciples need to understand their sin, but disciples also need to understand God's grace. Look at how Jesus reacts. Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus says to Peter, in a sense, he says, stop being fearful, Peter. He doesn't say your reaction was wrong. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you should have never been fearful in the first place. No, that, that would have been incorrect. Peter had very good reason to be afraid. He was standing face to face with the God of the universe. 
that should have caused him to shake just a little bit in his boots. And yet Jesus now says to him, Peter, you can stop being fearful. You've had the right reaction. It's okay, I've taken care of it. Is that my reaction to Jesus? When I see my sin, do I cling to the cross of Christ and understand his grace and his mercy? Nate's senior year of college at, at uh, first semester, he went through kind of a, a tough time at the end of the semester and, and struggled a little bit with some of his classes, and we found out about it in January. And, and Cindy and I, we found out about it. We hopped in the car, and we drove over to, uh, to IU to spend some time with him because we were, we were concerned about him. And uh, when we met him that evening, uh, we'd gotten a hotel room, and he came over to the hotel room. We met him that evening. He came in the room, and we just hugged him, and we started crying. And this was not really all that big of a deal in the, in the grand scheme of what kids can go through at colleges these days. This was, this was not really all that bad of a, of a thing, but it was enough that it shook him a little bit and it shook us. And so it was the right reaction to kind of just hold on to him and, and cry a little bit, but, but say, you know what, son, it's okay. Now we can deal with this. Mom, mom and dad are here. It's going to be all right. Friends, when we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, yes, we have to see our sins but it is just as emphatically important that we see the love and the grace and the compassion of Christ who holds on to us. It says, stop being afraid. I've taken care of this for you. But disciples also, ultimately, being convinced about Jesus, understanding our sin, understanding our, uh, his grace, disciples must spend our lives following. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, verse 10, don't be afraid from now and you'll be catching men. And when they had brought the boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It doesn't say that they went to the market, cashed in on this miraculous catch they had, you know, made sure that their last catch was their best and they earned all their money from it. They left the fish sitting in the boats. Fishermen don't do that. I like the fish. I don't fish that much, but if I've ever caught a big fish, I've been really excited about it. I've brought it home. On that same fishing trip that I told you about in 96, I caught the biggest largemouth bass I've ever caught, over six pounds. And we held it up and we took a picture of it, only to have my sister-in-law not have film in the camera. <laughs> and to this day, they deny that I caught that fish. <laughs> we have a severed relationship with them, but we're working through it. Fishermen like their fish. These guys, they're oblivious to that. All they want to do is follow. A disciple is a person who's in training, who voluntarily submits to his or her teacher. A disciple is convinced of their teacher's philosophy. A disciple spends their life conforming their character to the character of the one whom they're following. Disciples are consistently looking for clues along the way. Where is my teacher headed? What is he or she trying to show me? How can I adapt that to my life? How can I conform my life so that I'm walking down the same path? Sometimes we get off the path. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we get lost and we have to be drawn back. And I think perhaps as a church, maybe it's part of this prayer and fasting is Jesus bringing us back to that pathway. The summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I worked on a ranch in Wyoming. And I think I'd watched too many John Wayne movies growing up because I had this vision of, you know, riding the range and roping the doggies and all those kind of things you do out there on the range. I ended up spending the summer digging irrigation ditches. Didn't, never saw a doggie the whole summer I was out there. And, uh, <laughs> but I went down to, to Denver one weekend to visit my brother, and, and uh, 
He had a Dodge Duster. Anybody remember the Dusters? That was such a cool car. And uh, he drove me back up to Wyoming in the Duster, and he dropped me off three miles from our house late on a Sunday night. Now, the reason he dropped me off three miles from the house is because that's where the mailbox was right before the first creek crossing, which was about three feet deep. And Dodge Dusters don't do well in three feet of water. So I had to walk three miles back from the, from the, uh, from the mailbox back to our, uh, to our house, back to our bunkhouse, which was not a big deal because I looked at the weather map and it was going to be a full moon. And a full moon in the middle of Wyoming, in the middle of the wilderness, you could just see just as clear as can be. And our driveway was actually a dirt pathway that had the two dirt tire marks with the grass in the middle, right? Okay, so all you got to do is kind of follow the dirt, and it winds around and through the creek, and everything's fine. Well, I got out of the car, and he left. The duster drove off, right? Cloudy night, no moon. Just as much as it's bright when the moon's out, it's really, really dark when it's not. Like, you can't see your hand in front of your face. So I stood there for about 10 minutes, staring at the ground, until I saw the lighter brown patch as opposed to the grass that was right there. And I spent literally two and a half hours walking three miles like this. And I would get along and all of a sudden I'd go, wait a minute, I'm up to hay, up to my hips. I'm in the wrong place. I'm off the path. I got to back up. Okay, there, oh, it's going this way. Okay. And I literally had to head down, follow that path for fear of my life and getting lost. As a disciple of Jesus, am I that intense about following about staying on the path, or rather, is my relationship with Jesus more about him making suggestions, some of which I'll take, others of which I'll discard, depending on what might be most convenient. Are we really disciples of Jesus? Part of that probably depends on what I'm willing to leave behind, but I think more importantly, it begs the question, where is Jesus headed? And am I willing to follow? I'm going to leave the text for just a few minutes and I want to spend some time sharing with you a few observations I've made as I've been studying Luke's gospel again about where Jesus is headed. Because I think as I, as I discover these things and you discover these things, it will help us to understand the direction of our lives if we are brave enough to call ourselves disciples. Here's some of the ways in which I need to conform my life. Here's where Jesus, so to speak, is heading. Here are some of the clues. Jesus has a passion for the will of his Father. Every time Jesus is confronted by somebody who says, you're really not doing the right thing, he says, I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father. It's the only thing I'm interested in. And I'm going to do that whatever it happens to be in any given situation. Am I that kind of disciple that says, you know what, wherever God's going, that's where I'm going to go. You may want to come along with me. You might not want to come along with me. But you know what, that isn't the point. The point is, is that I'm a follower of Jesus, and we are passionate about the will of our Father. We're here to complete his agenda, not ours. Does that describe me? Jesus has a love for and a knowledge of the word of God. It says that Jesus uh, was teaching what? The word of God, and the people were pressing in on him because that's what they knew he had to offer. It wasn't the latest fad. It wasn't the next get-rich-quick scheme. It was the very word of God. Am I a student? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a student of God's word, and I have a love for it, and I desire to put it into my life so that it will change who I am from the inside out. Another thing I've observed in Luke's gospel, you know what? Jesus really loved kids. Jesus absolutely loved children. You know the two times in Jesus' ministry where he gets angry? One is at the temple, right, when the people are ripping other folks off. Folks have come to pray and to worship, and they've made it all about business, and they're, and they're cheating folks out of their money by selling them uh, these flawed animals. And Jesus tears up the whole temple. He goes out, and he methodically puts together a whip. And he goes back in, and he just beats the snot out of everybody. And he was mad. 
The other time Jesus was angry is when the disciples stood in the way of children trying to, trying to come to him. And we read that in the Gospels. And, and if, you know, in the old King James Version, it says, you know, don't let the little children, you know, don't stand their way, but let them come to me for such is the kingdom of God. And it, it sounds so sweet and it sounds so nice, but Jesus was actually pretty angry at that moment to the point where he was probably calling his disciples out right in front of everybody else and rebuking them and saying, have you guys lost your minds? You say you're my disciples and you're trying to keep these children from coming over? Get out of the way, Peter. What on earth are you doing? There was real anger in his voice, a real passion because Jesus loves kids. I have an ama- what I think is an amazing statistic for you this morning. You might not think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. And this isn't it. We have in middle school and high school, we have 125 kids at Green Tree Community Church. From birth to fifth grade, you know how many kids we have? 250. And some of you are pregnant right now. Thank you very much. (laughs) And you're adding to that number on a daily basis. It's like the the Lord added to their number those who are becoming pregnant. (laughs) You know what? That's an astounding figure that gives us an amazing opportunity as disciples of Jesus to minister his grace to these children. I hope the green tree will always be a place that's filled with disciples of Jesus because if it is, it will be a place where children are dearly loved. I've had a conversation over the last couple of weeks with, with some friends with whom I, I, I love dearly and, and have a sincere disagreement. We've been talking about the, the Orphans of Vulnerable Children campaign. And, and some of my dearest friends have come to me and said, you know, Tom, why are you pushing this deal? Because, you know, money's kind of tight right now at Green Tree. The fact is our money isn't tight at Green Tree right now. What's tight is our hold on it. What, why are you pushing this so much? Why not just leave it for a better time? We have enough kids in our church to worry about just on our own. I have a verse I read on a fairly regular basis, and, and it, it might not keep you up at night, but it keeps me up at night. It says this in James chapter 3, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You know, just almost every missions organization we've come in touch with has kids involved. The school in which we meet has kids involved, and so we sponsor. $5,000 a year, we sponsor a tutoring program so children at risk in this school can have a better education. When those guys go over to Kenya, they came back, what did Kerber say? Oh, my gosh, there's kids running around all over the place. Sherry Brock's ministry in Russia, what is it? It's to orphans. We went to Cape Town, South Africa last year, and what do we see? Dozens and dozens and dozens, literally hundreds of children who needed help. But everywhere we turn, whether it's a Micah project in Honduras or in our own backyard, God is bringing children to us. And friends, I'm not going to stand in front of God and say, I didn't do anything about that. Now, we may not end up giving a whole lot of money, but it's not going to be because I didn't stand up and say, I think we need to love kids because we're disciples of Jesus. And friends, we need to rethink our priorities and reshape our hearts so that they come into conformity with Jesus and not with this world in which we live. Jesus loved kids. And Jesus loves the lost. It's another observation I've made. It's been interesting. We've been praying and fasting over the last few weeks. Last week, we gave kind of a public opportunity for folks to put their faith to Christ, and, and nobody stepped out into the aisle. But you know what? In the last couple of weeks of Green Tree, I know of at least four different stories where somebody's come to Jesus in a side conversation with another person. I think when you pray and you fast and you ask God to do something, one of the first things he does is he saves people. Why? Because Jesus has a heart for the lost. Why do you think we want to plant a church in Lafayette Square? 
Why do you think we're going to be coming back to you later on this year? If you think OVCC is going to cost us money, you haven't seen anything yet until we get to what it's going to cost us to plant a church. But I will unashamedly stand before you and say, if we're going to invest in something, let's invest in this because it's the greatest opportunity we have, bar our own personal evangelism, to reach the lost. And Jesus has a passion and a love for the lost. Look at the people with whom Jesus spent his time, tax collectors, prostitutes, folks that didn't know God, people that needed salvation, were desperately lost. Jesus said, I haven't come for those who are healthy. I came for those who need a doctor. What's our theme verse for this year out of Luke's gospel? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Friends, if I don't have a passion to share my faith, if I don't have a passion to see Green Tree be a place where people can come to hear the gospel, then I don't have the heart of Jesus. And I'm being disingenuous when I say I'm his disciple. Jesus cared for the poor and the sick as well. When we were in South Africa last year and we were walking around uh, the township of of, uh, Philippi during the day and then we got to go over and visit Samora, which is a community that we've adopted as a congregation. They now have some folks working in Samora. the, The thought that crossed my mind over and over and over again was, if Jesus were here, this is a kind of place where he'd be. He'd be hanging out with the people that were poor. He'd be, he'd be caring for the people that were sick. He would be loving those who are most needy. And when I neglect them, I neglect the heart of Jesus. Jesus hated hypocrisy and arrogance and rudeness when he saw it in the religious leaders of his day. Uh, I've had some of you say to me from time to time, boy, I appreciate you being vulnerable and I appreciate you being honest about yourself in front of us and talking about your own sin. And, and those examples and stories aren't very hard to find because I have a lot of it in my life. But I got to tell you that that's kind of strategic on my part. I, I share my life with you because I don't want you to ever think that I'm sinless. I don't want you to ever think that I don't have a problem with sin. And I do that on purpose because I have a desire to look good on the outside while ignoring what's going on inside my heart. And I'm just looking for clues on how to be on the road with Jesus. And I need to see the hypocrisy in my own life if I'm going to be a disciple. I need to see that arrogance and repent of it. And to follow the one who said, take up my cross because I'm humble and I'm gentle and I'm compassionate. Jesus loved generosity. Remember that little boy with a couple loaves and three fish? Jesus looks at his disciples. He goes, we got 5,000 for dinner, boys. What are we going to do? And the disciples look at the crowd and they see the impossibility. The little boy looks at his fish and he sees a miracle. Here you go, Jesus. Try this one on for size. What are you going to do with this? A generous heart. Think about Zacchaeus when he became a Christian. We're going to get to Zacchaeus at some point. We're, we've been in Luke now for a few months. We'll get to chapter 19 sometime maybe in September. Keep hanging around. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But you remember the story. Zacchaeus climbs up the tree, sees Jesus. Jesus says, get out of the tree. We're going to have lunch. And by the way, we're going to your house. What do you have to eat? They have a big banquet. Zacchaeus stands up in the middle of the banquet. And Zacchaeus was a, was, a, was a guy who ripped people off for a living. That's what he did. He was a tax collector. And he stole from people. And Zacchaeus stood up and he said, you know what, Jesus, half of what I have today, I'm giving it to the poor. Whatever that number is, half of it's gone already. And if I've ripped anybody off, <laughs> yeah, like there's a lot of those folks running around. I, you know, people would have been starting to line up at the door going, hey, guess what? Zacchaeus is, is paying back. Zacchaeus said, I'll pay back four times what I've stolen. I think at the end of the day, Zacchaeus was pretty poor. I think, quite frankly, at the end of the day, Zacchaeus could have been broke. In fact, at the end of the day, Zacchaeus might have actually been in debt to try and and fulfill the promise he made. But you know what? Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house. Because this one, too, is a son of Abraham. 
Jesus loves generosity. Friends, the question before the house this morning is not whether or not we're going to call ourselves Christians. Everybody calls themselves, 87%, 87 Americans out of 100 call themselves Christians. It's not the question. The question as we refocus on Jesus is whether or not we truly want to be his disciples. Does that define you? Does that define me? I want to start telling people I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to try to stop telling people I'm a Christian. I've got worldwide movement and one person signed up so far. So I have a ways to go. There are 4 billion people on the planet somewhere. But I think it forces me to get my sinful heart out into the open and see where I need to conform to him and not have him conform to me. Let's pray. Father, Peter and James and John just left everything. They didn't cash in on the big catch. They just left it all sitting there because they saw something different. Quite frankly, they saw something astounding. They had heard the word of God coming from the lips of Jesus, and they saw the power of God, even in a simple thing like catching more fish than they could have, could have caught that day on their own. And that was enough. They were convinced. It was still a journey for them. They still got more stuff wrong than they got right. They still had to grow and they had to learn. But they were on the road. They were saying, where is Jesus going and how can we follow? They were looking for the clues. And Lord Jesus, in your grace and in your mercy, you told Peter, Peter, you don't need to be afraid anymore. It was good that you were afraid because I am the son of God, but I've taken care of that. You have forgiveness through me. Now, come on. We're going to go catch some people for the kingdom of God. Father, whether it's children, whether it's the poor, whether it's a question of my generosity or my arrogance, wherever I need to grow as a disciple, wherever we need to grow as disciples, Father, show us that, please. Call us to a life of discipleship so that we would reflect Jesus in his name.